My subject is war, the pity of war. The words of Wilfred Owen, of course, but they could just as easily have been the words of Benjamin Britten in a description of his Sinfonia Directquiem, written at the height of that conflagration that was the Second World War in the spring of 1940, when the composer was, to some extent, hiding away in America. Now, the circumstances surrounding the commission of this piece are worth going into a little. They're quite curious. In the autumn of 1939, the Japanese government had got in touch with Britain, as they had with Neo for France and Strauss for Germany, to come up with pieces that would mark the 2600th anniversary of the founding of the Mikado dynasty, that is, the Japanese imperial dynasty. Britain responded immediately with the outline of a plan for a piece in three movements based on the Requiem Mass. He got a cable back saying, yep, that'd be absolutely fine. It seems that Britain had already been thinking about this piece because he had felt very keenly the loss of his own parents earlier in his twenties and this piece had obviously been percolating in his mind for some time. So he finishes the piece, he sends it off to Japan and here's nothing for six months. In the meantime, of course, relations between England and Japan are worsening and worsening. Finally, he hears back from the Japanese authorities and they say, this piece simply won't do. For a start, it's Christian, which is very inappropriate here, and the whole tenor of the piece is far too dark for something that ought to be celebratory in nature. Now, whether Britain had misread the nature of the commission itself and thought that it was to do with, you know, being in memory of the first Japanese emperor is unclear. But he wrote back quite a sort of stroppy letter saying, well, of course it's sort of Christian in, in ethos because I am sort of Christian in ethos. So, as I say, in three movements based broadly around the idea of the Requiem, Britain was very clear that it was more an emotional connection to the idea of the Requiem than anything more liturgical or intellectual. Well, I've got my own issues with that as I'll uh, revealed to you a little later on. So the first movement is called Lacrimosa, and it's an incredible slow marching lament, a kind of huge hammer blow which starts it and then gradually recedes. There's a sense of real trudging in this music. It brings to mind very much the last song of Mahler's Songs of the Earth, the Abshid, the Farewell, where you may remember there are clods of earth being thrown into the grave. It's also very close to the first movement of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, the funeral cortege and these repeated timpani Ds. They're both definitely, I would regard as satellite listening to this piece. D for Britain, it seems, standing very much for death. <laughs> So the piece begins. Now, at this point, we get the first motive or theme in the movement, which rises out of the cellos. Now, if you think about what the nature of a requiem is, a requiem is a chance for all the people left on earth to will a soul on its way. And that's exactly what this theme seems to be doing in the cellos. It's as if it's striving for some kind of release. It's based on three key intervals, all of which are quite uncomfortable. So first of all, we get this tritone. Then it retreats again, then you get the augmented fifth. And finally, the seventh.
Now, if I put that, or weave that, rather, into the theme proper, you'll hear how each time you get that interval, then the cellos retreat back to the same place. Then they try the slightly wider interval, they retreat back. And finally, with the seventh, they achieve that emancipation they've been looking for. back down. Now let's put that in context with the rest of the orchestra and just listen to the orchestration with low clarinets particularly have written just earmarks, just underlines the key stress points as this theme, this nascent theme tries to find itself. there's an answer to this motive which we hear in the bassoon and this is where I want to point out something which for me has been an absolute revelation which is that whilst Britain saying that the connection to the requiem mass is only an emotional one it seems there's more substance to it than that because the original plain song for the Dies Irae which is written in the Roman Missal of 1570 has this tune which I'm going to ask the trombones to play now Take the first four pitches. Now we're going to flatten the second note and sharpen the leading note. Let's reorder those four notes. Let's listen to how it actually occurs in the bassoon. The most desperately plaintive answer to that cello theme. Let's put that in context. the violas take up what the cellos had before.
Now, at this point, we get the second motive, which comes in the alto saxophone. Very interesting. This I was talking earlier about the influence of Mahler on this piece. Alban Berg is, has a similar influence to bring to bear here, particularly in the use of the alto saxophone. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Berg's violin concerto, which Britain heard the first performance of. There's a very, very similar quality to the usage of the alto saxophone here. And what he has is a rising figure in sevenths. Again, slowly but surely, creeping higher and higher, same sense of looking for release. You can hear it edging up, and it continues to edge up, fused together with this new theme, elements of what the bassoon had in that plain song derived theme before. start to hot up. Now the trumpets take over this syncopated figure that's been hinted at, only it becomes very weak and very kind of blanched in quality because it has no strong beats around which to syncopate, as it were. It gets left hanging there. And then over the top of that, you get the third motive, which is at this point in the trombones and the flutes. Now you hear what's happening there, just starting to happen anyway, it's a process that then continues with this particular motive, that the trombone music ends up slithering upwards, if you can slither upwards, 
and the flute music ends up slithering downwards, going in contrary motion. And we get this magical re-entering of the strings, and in particular the piano and harp. And they're doing the same kind of thing now as what the trombones and flutes were doing before, that the piano and the harp are going in contrary motion, and you'll hear how the strings are aping that contrary motion as well. Isn't that the most extraordinary, unearthly, deathly chord? And here's the sevenths again. Things are getting very hot indeed. Now let's just break down what the trombones and now trumpets have. That motive that before the trombones and the flutes had has now become a trombone trumpet thing. Again, they're working in contrary motion, the one moving up, the other moving down. I just want to split up the top and bottom parts. You can hear exactly how they work. It's a kind of distortion of harmony going on here. So let's hear what the trumpets do. Same kind of idea, in fact. And that winds its way down as the trombones wind their way up. 
So we're back to where we started, but where now the cello theme was that very delicate little aspiring phrase to start with. It's now taken up by full blazing orchestra. You can hear here, if you listen carefully, that there's an amazing tension between D minor and D major. Some commentators have said that D minor represents peace in this work and D major represents conflict. Difficult to say. You have to draw your own conclusions. But all that is absolutely certain is that the brass have this amazing great D minor chord and they're driven out of it into the major by the alto sax and the strings. And then they're driven back out of the major and back into the minor again. It's a very, very powerful effect. And suddenly, we're into the Diezere, the real meat of this piece. Diezere, the day of wrath, the day when heaven and earth are turned into ashes. And boy, does it get off to that kind of a start. There's a very strong connection here between this work and Britain's Our Hunting Fathers, which is a symphonic song cycle. The Dance of Death, in particular, which is a very, very biting Tarantella movement that we'll come to and actually play an extract from a little later on. But there's a word which is used, because obviously that's the setting of a poem by Thomas Ravenscroft, 17th century poet, which repeatedly comes back to this word, warret, warret, which is apparently the sound of a partridge taking off. The poem is all about a partridge being hunted, or partridges in general being hunted. You keep getting this word with lots of rolled R's, and it's no coincidence, I think, that Britain uses flutter-tonguing in the flutes right at the start here to suggest that warret, that rolled R effect. Also, of course, the tritone, never far away. You hear the trumpets, they put down what the top note is in E flat, and then immediately you get an A natural above it. You get that same sense of tritone once again. We play the beginning of DA0, please. Now, I said the tritone is never far away. The fact is, certainly as far as I'm concerned, the plain song is never very far away either. I'm going to ask Stephen Bryant, the leader of the orchestra, just to play the first four notes of the plain chant. Now, I'm going to ask the strings to play very slowly the figure they have, which is a real filigree 
brittle little figure. I'm going to play it slowly so you can hear exactly how those pitches are within it. Just from 17. You get the idea. Never far away, that plain chant, in my view. What you may have heard there in the double basses is now an echo back to those hammer blows which started the very first movement. Let's just hear them on their own. A very strong sforzando on the last one. Let's put that back in context. One before 19. Now we get into a completely new idea altogether, which is this Tarantella that I was talking about earlier. Before we get into it, I'd like to look at an extract, an orchestral interlude from The Dance of Death, from Our Hunting Fathers, this symphonic song cycle by Britain, which predates this work by about four years.
A real tarantella, that. Tarantellas, of course, dances from southern Italy, right down at the heel of the country. The idea of a tarantella being that it in some way resembles the bite of the poisonous spider by the same name, or almost the same name. It also has a strong association with hunting. So getting back into the Sinfonia di Requiem, in the middle of the Dies Irae, we get this very strong tarantella feeling from the two trumpets. Let's put it in context, with this tarantella biting, biting music in the trumpets and the strings, the lower strings, playing pochis ruvido, little roughly. Then at this point, we get yapping, baying, dogs. The dogs are out now in the form of the horns. Not surprised if this has become like a sort of metaphorical hunt. Here we get in the bassoons and some of the other instruments a sense of that opening cello theme. Now they're inverted, they're upside down. Let's just hear the bassoons playing that. And those dropping intervals become like a kind of mantra that the whole orchestra take up over the ensuing texture. So we get into a kind of a machine-like accompaniment with those falling intervals I was talking about. The alto saxophone comes in with a sort of more expansive theme, which is a variation, in a sense, on the first cello theme we heard in the first movement, but also looking forward to the last movement, the Requiem Eternum, which we'll hear a little later on. It is, as I say, more expansive. Again, rising, trying to seek some kind of resolution. Up and up it goes. Then we're into another texture again, a new idea, which is heard in the brass. Now the trombones take over that new idea the trumpets have had. Shortly after them, the first and third horns, and then the trumpets have it once again.
worth stopping there once again. That figure that uh, had been earlier in the brass is now given over to the strings. You can hear them playing it very plainly. Let's just hear them once on their own, please. Now, underneath that, the piano and the basses have a tritone figure. So that's very, very strident and strong underneath it. The horns, in the meantime, have the same rhythm as this theme we've got in the strings, but based on a crushed chord, which just thunders out the same rhythm. Now we get to the real climax of this movement. There's a kind of grotesque animal vitality about this, where it all comes together. Now, if you listen to this next section, it's a slow wind-down. It's as if the machine itself is breaking down. There's jagged sounds flying in all directions, kind of shrapnel. And from this utter desolation, a new hope is born. The final section, the Requiem Eternum. Now, once again, we come back to the plain chant. Let's hear the flutes playing the Dies Irae plain chant. This time, we'll take the second phrase. Slip it into the major key. Finally, transpose it up a third. Now, let's listen to it in context. We have to change the meter. It's three in a bar rather than four. We have to elaborate the rhythm, add some sort of triadic-based chorusing, and it is the theme of this last movement.
with a healthy dose of wrong note harmony in it as well. Now let's look for a minute at what the harp is doing, sometimes supported by the bass clarinet, sometimes by a solo cello, and sometimes by a solo double bass. A kind of ground bass, ground bass, a device borrowed from Baroque times, where you have a motif that repeats itself. There are just eight pitches contained in this perpetuum mobile bass line that the harp has, but the order of those pitches is very peculiar indeed. It's almost like a quasi-serial line. Very, very poignant indeed. Now, the second motive to this movement comes in the violins, and it's very hot indeed. It is, in a sense, once again, constantly reaching to strive higher, to attain that redemption and that release. Again, you think of the Christian idea of the Requiem Mass, of willing a soul on its way. clad in the most extraordinary sort of misty, sort of soft-edged but slightly bluesy harmonies you'll hear when we play the piece through. So, resolution, or not, is this interesting figure which just grows and grows up to the very top with tritones and sevenths in it, which feels for all the world like the angel of death. You have to remember that Britain was writing this piece in 1940 when there was absolutely no sign of any possible resolution to the terrible conflict that was going on around the world. So it's a very, very hard, brutal, sudden upshift in tension and energy. You could see it, of course, in another much more personal way altogether, which is that it was, remembering the whole piece was, in memory of his parents, that this was some kind of final saying, some final kind of thought gesture of love and of peace, ultimately, for the memory of his mother. Well, we'll perform it for you now, Benjamin Britten's Symphonia Directquim. An extraordinary, urgent prayer or plea for peace, for deliverance, at a time that must have seemed so bleak for everyone 
throughout the world. And it's curious that now, over half a century later, the message still feels extremely pertinent. <laughs>